Starting your locker natural hair journey is oh so rewarding, but can be extremely stressful when you start to consider what products to use. If that's you, then look no further. Locklicious is a Black-owned company that has created an all-natural product line for locked and loose natural crowns. The Locklicious team works hard to ensure that their products are free of parabens, phthalates, sulfates, PEG, synthetics, and other toxic chemicals you find in other products. Best of all, the products are lightweight and will not leave residue or cause buildup. Go to Locklicious.com to start treating your crown like royalty. Welcome to Chilling with Teddy G, an authentic Black channel empowering the Black community and capturing the modern-day Black reality through investigative journalism. I'm your host, Teddy G. Hello to all of my melanated kings and queens, my sisters in as well as South Africa, and to my listening audience around the globe. I welcome each and of you back to another episode of CWTG. As you know, I am Teddy G, your host, and on this channel, we discuss anything and everything with absolutely no sure, no crossing, and definitely no mayonnaise. Y'all go grab y'all separate paper cup of coffee, tea, or latte, or whatever you prefer. Enjoy me for the next few minutes, ladies and gentlemen, as we uh, talk about Nicole Jones, who's a New York Times uh, magazine reporter, as well as the uh, um, author or co-author of the uh, 1619 Project of Critical Race Theory. Now, we're going to talk about that in depth, and we're going to go to uh, Democracy Now! and get an in that they did with uh, Nicole on the subject matter of um, critical theory. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and why uh, uh, Mzungu Americans are so afraid of this uh, theory and these teachings and this history. But that's basically what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's American history. And as you know, they have done everything that they can to try to uh, keep out of the uh, educational system. They want it out of mainstream um, um, uh, society as a whole, okay, because they want to try, in my opinion, cover up the atrocities that uh, was done in that particular time. And we're going to get right into this, ladies and gentlemen, as soon as we do some housekeeping, because you know must that we keep the dirty laundry at the studios of Chilling with Teddy G clean with the Copyright Disclaimer Act of 76 under Title 17, Section 107. Allowances is made for the fair use for the purpose criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is permitted by the copyright statute. They otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit education or personal use tips to balance in the favor of fair use. Now, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, 1619 Project and the teachings of the race theory has been an issue with uh, white supremacy and has pretty much put them on track. And this seems to be a problem for them because they want this part of American history to be eliminated, not to be seen, not to be talked, and not to be talked about simply because they want to hide this part of American history. But ladies and gentlemen, we all know that this is what this country was founded on. It was founded on slavery. 
it was founded on uh, Magunzu uh, privileges, thinking that they were the superior race over other. And they want to be able to continue to paint the narrative of what American history is. So it would benefit them if they were to not talk about the horrors and the atrocities that they had done to a group of people, Native Black American people and uh, Africans and anybody of a Native persuasion to um, come out and uh, uh, destroy this and their foundation of the way that they started uh, this country. And the uh, 1619 um, creator, Nicole Hannah-Jones, ladies and gentlemen, she puts it in its proper perspective and will not let, <clears throat> excuse me, the narrative that uh, uh, um, Mzungu supremacists want to paint so that they can continue to uh, rule this country the way that they have, continue to keep uh, Native Black Americans um, as a, a, a third-class citizen, or let's just say at the bottom of the totem pole, so that they can continue to reign and not let this of the uh, world, the rest of the nations, know uh, of their atrocities because they continue today. And these uh, race theories, ladies and gentlemen, goes directly to the way that America perceives Native Black Americans today. This is the reason why you have your Kings. This is the reason why you have your Eric Garners. This is the reason why you have your Trayvon Mons. This is the reason why you have your um, Ahmaud Arbery's. And this lives on and on and on, ladies and gentlemen, where we have these uh, um, law enforcement soldiers committing these atrocities where Mzungu um, citizens feel that they have the right to run down and gun down a black man and not worry about any uh, severe consequences behind that. All of this, ladies and gentlemen, is directly related to the uh, 1619 Project and the reason why what happened then is the reason why happens to Native Black Americans now. Now, intellectuals and uh, the social movement and organized framework legal uh, analysts based on the premise that race is uh, not uh, a natural, biological, uh, grounded feature of uh, physical distincts, you know, uh, subgroups uh, of uh, human beings, but a social construct, okay, culturally invented category that is uh, 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 to oppress and uh, exploit uh, people of color, in my opinion. Now, critical race theorists, they hold that, uh, you know, racism is uh, inherent in the law and in the legal institutions, all across the divided snakes, you know, insofar as they um, function to create, maintain social, economic, and uh, political inadequacies between Mzungu and uh, non-Mzungus, especially blacks and uh, uh, um, African-Americans. Now, critical race theorists, they, they are generally uh, dedicated to applying their understanding 
of the uh, institutional or structural nature of racism to create uh, um, goals that will uh, uh, that is eliminating all race-based and other unjust inheritables. So, in other words, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, critical race theory is something that they want to hide. CRT something that they do not want to come out on the forefront, basically. And because of Nicole Jones, who was uh, the creator of the uh, 1619 Project, and has brought um, to the uh, uh, mainstream uh, America, Mazungu's got a problem with it, especially the ones who are in uh, uh, political positions. And they're doing all that they can, ladies and gentlemen, to stop that from happening. I mean, even when Donald Trump was in office, he he tried to debunk the whole theory of um, behind uh, teaching of black history and American history. Because we all know they say uh, American history, they say black history. But ladies and gentlemen, in this uh, country, and in the baddest snakes of America, those two are the same. Okay? That's why black history is American history. That's why uh, Native um, American Indians is American history. Because this is where, this is the soil that it happened on. Native Black Americans, Native Indian Americans, ladies and gentlemen, were already here when so-called Columbus saying that he discovered something that was already inhabited. So let's go to uh, Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez, who uh, do the uh, War and Peace Report on the uh, uh, show Democracy Now! and uh, see this interview with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones on the... Uh, 1619 projects and the teachings of critical race theory and why these Mzungu's, uh supremacy individuals are on trial for this uh, heinous and atrocious part of American history. Well, we begin today's show with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who covers racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. She's the creator of the landmark 1619 Project, which reframes U.S. history by marking the year 1619, when the first enslaved Africans arrived on Virginia soil as the country's foundational date. This month, two new books that she co-edited are out. The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, and an adaptation for children titled Born on the Water. It was the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans landing in Colonia, Virginia in 1619 that the New York Times Magazine launched the 1619 Project as a special issue in 2019. It's now been expanded as an anthology of 18 essays along with poems and short stories that examine the legacy of slavery dedicated to the more than 30 million descendants of American slavery. Many argue the 1619 Project has changed how history is taught and discussed in the United States. Just last year, then Donald Trump announced his proposed 1776 Commission at the National Archives Museum in Washington, D.C. last year in direct response to the 1619 Project. 
critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that if not removed will dissolve civic bonds that tie us together, will destroy our country. That is why I recently banned trainings in this prejudiced ideology from the federal government and banned it in the strongest manner. Of course you would do that because you don't want the truth to be told. Okay? Because we know, and you made it perfectly clear, that you are a, uh, a white supremacist and that you believe that... Uh, your race is superior to other races. We've heard what you called other uh, groups, other ethnic people. You know, murderers, uh, rapists, all type of horrible labels that you have put on people who are non-Mazungus. So I we, we did not expect to do anything other than to try to continue to paint the false American narrative, you want to uh, continue to reign in this country. It's, it's clear. These states have banned the teaching of the 1619 Project as part of the right-wing acts on critical race theory in schools. Earlier this year, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where Noel Hannah Jones went to graduate school, initially denied her tenure even after it was unanimously approved by the faculty. The board typically rubber stamps tenure for professors who win such approval peers, and it reversed the decision after protests from alumni, faculty, and students, and ultimately Nicole Hannah-Jones' tenure, but she declined. Instead announced she would join the faculty at Howard University, one of the country's most prestigious historically black universities, and help launch the Center for Journalism and Democracy. Tonight, Nicole Hannah-Jones will visit her high school alma mater in Waterloo, Iowa, where she'll talk about her two new books with her former teacher, Reverend Ray Don, who was the teacher who first introduced her to the date 1619 as the year a ship-carrying enslaved people first arrived in what's now the United States. She writes that when she first read the date, it appeared to be glowing three-dimensional numbers rising from the page as an exhilarating revelation started to sink in. Nicole Hannah-Jones, welcome back to Democracy Now! Congratulations on new books as you join us from Des Moines on your way to Waterloo. Can you talk about that moment in school? What a difference a high school teacher makes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Mr. Ray Gow is the teacher who changed my life. He, the teacher who both introduced me to uh, how vast black history was, even though we hadn't taught hardly any of it. And he's also the teacher who introduced me uh, or suggested that I join my high newspaper and write the stories that I wanted to see. So uh, I opened the preface for the 1619 book with that because uh, that was a transformative moment for me. Um, I had no idea that black Americans uh, had been here this long that we had a bitch that went back almost as long as the English people who got all the credit for it. And that uh, number stood in to me for an erasure and really made me understand as a young, you know, 15 or 16 year old that the history we're taught is not necessarily the most important things, 
or all there is to know, but it's what someone has determined that we should know. And that there's so much more out there, uh, particularly if you're members of marginalized communities, that never gets into the histories we tell about. And that erasure is very powerful. Uh, uh, could you talk about the, uh, the the 1690 project itself? It's comprised of 18 essays and 36 poems and works of fiction. Uh, talk about your decision to uh, use this format uh, to tell the story. Yes, so the 1619 Project New Origin Story, uh, the book, is an expanded version of the original project that published in all of 2019. So all of the original essays that were in that first project have all been significantly expanded. Uh, and then we've added eight additional uh, essays written by Rain of uh, some of the nation's most renowned historians from Dr. Carol Anderson to Martha Jones to Dr. Uh, Dorothy Roberts, um, Dr. Martha Jones, sorry. And they're covering a range of uh, subject areas such as Indian removal and settler colonialism, citizenship, creation of race, uh, Second Amendment. Um, and so it's really giving an even broader understanding of how the legacy of slavery shapes our modern society. And then in addition to that, uh, we've also doubled the poetry and short fiction that was in the original project in what we call a literary timeline. We ask some of the great American writers to reimagine all of these periods in uh, American history involving black people and race. And, and to write them from a black perspective. And it's actually one of the most profound and powerful parts of the book. And then the third aspect of the book uh, are these archival photos that uh, launch every essay. So the photos are of regular black people, not famous people uh, through time from the beginning of, of photography all the way until you know a couple years ago. And it's a way of forcing the reader to pause and consider the humanity of these 31 million descendants of American slavery, that all to be focused that everything that you're going to read about, all of the, the brutality, all the horrors, all the violence, but also the resilience, all the love, uh, happen to real people. So uh, I think that the, the format is beautiful and it's powerful and um, people, are, I hope, will get a great deal from it. At the core of the of the book is an attempt, obviously, to link the past to the present. Could you talk about how we continue to see the legacy of slavery in current U.S. institutions, whether it's the government itself or the the education, uh, housing. Absolutely. So the entire premise of the 1619 Project is that uh, the legacy of slavery was not banished along with the institution of slavery in 1865. That slavery is one of the oldest institutions in our society. The English settled Jamestown in 1607, and by 16, just 12 years later, they're engaging in African slavery. So that is uh, 150 years before they decide that they want to become their own country. And uh, that slavery uh, shaped everything. Um, nearly everything about the country that would ultimately be established. So, for instance, we have um, citizenship, which talks about the 14th Amendment and how the reason that we have birthright citizenship in the United States, where every um, person born on this soil is an automatic citizenship, is because black Americans generationally were not citizens of this country, even though they were born here. And after the end of slavery, they pushed very hard for a constitutional amendment that would guarantee them uh, citizenship, all people born in the soil citizenship. So we can thank black Americans for that. It talks about uh, the creation of race, 
and how these ideas of um, an inherent race and that one race is superior to another and the fact that on every single form that we that we have for the government we have to choose a race and our birth certificate our marriage certificate our death certificate that that is also a legacy of 1619. Uh, we have an article uh, that talks about the second amendment that's by dr carol anderson in Ottawa and really argues that our obsession with guns we are we are um we have more guns than almost any society um in the world and we have the highest rates of gun violence and that is also a legacy of slavery that the second amendment while we like to think of it uh, being, um, allowing citizens to form militias to ward off government tyranny it also was allowing them to form militias to suppress slave rebellions because enslaved people were constantly rebelling and it looks at why uh, someone like um, Fernando Castile in Minneapolis who was a legal gun carrier can be killed for carrying a gun and whether or not black people really do have a right to bear arms in the nation. So every single essay in the book really makes this uh, modern connection and what we hope. Uh, slavery has influenced our society in so many ways, but we've really invisible of that. We, we've lost that, that connection and understanding. And what I argue um, for the project is the narrative of 1776 does not explain uh, the insurrection on the Capitol in January. It doesn't explain George Floyd and why a white police officer could feel that he could kill a man from witnesses and would not have to worry about facing any consequences. And it certainly uh, doesn't explain why we have a political party right now that is uh, trying to instate minority rule. That is the legacy of 1619. Nicole, your work has become the target right-wing backlash. Last year, the Trump administration threatened to pull federal funding from schools that use the 1619 project in their curriculum. Tennessee's Education Commissioner Penny uh, Schwinn recently signed an emergency measure to regulate the topic of race and gender in classrooms that includes financial penalties for educators who violate the law. This is after Tennessee's Republican governor signed a law prohibiting critical race theory from being taught in the state schools. You've got other states, including North Dakota, Tennessee, Florida, Idaho, and Texas that have passed Similar. I want to play a clip of Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott signing into law the 1836 project earlier this year. The name is a reference to the 1619 project and marks the year Texas ceded from Mexico. The 1836 project promotes patriotic education of Texas and ensures that the generations to come understand Texas values. Now, you and others responded to the announcement of the 1830 Project by highlighting the fact that Texas had fully legalized slavery and its constitution was guilty at the time of lynching black and Mexican Texans. If you could talk about this movement around the country, what it means for history of the United States and for what children and everyone learns. Yes. Uh, so one, I, I think it's quite revealing that the argument is if we teach a truer history that actually reflects uh, the fact what happened, that that will raise children not to love their country. I think that says a great deal about what we actually think about uh, how much this country has lived up to the idea of exceptionalism. Um, if, if a patriotism has to be based on propaganda that really diminishes uh, and tries to erase from memory of the difficult parts of our past, it doesn't seem like that is a, a genuine patriotism. I think that um, 
we should all, as Americans, be deeply, deeply concerned about the anti-history laws because what they're really attempting to do is control our memory and to control our understanding of our country. When Texas succeeded in 1836, it succeeded in order to form a slowly republic. Uh, if you don't teach that, then children are not able to understand all of the inequality they have today. Um, you know, uh, Timothy Snyder, the historian, uh, is a historian of authoritarianism, and he talks about how these memory laws that we're seeing being passed all across the country, in my home state of Iowa, where I am right now, uh, where first they tried to pass an anti-1619 project law, which failed, and then they came back and successfully passed an anti-critical race theory law, which has educated the state that uh, launched my career, where I was educated, afraid to teach the work that I have done. Um, what they do is when you start to see these memory laws, you start to see that are veering towards authoritarianism, the idea of banning books, the idea that, uh, that politicians will use power of the state to prevent the teaching of ideas that they do not like. It's not incidental, Amy, and I know you know this, that the same states that are passing these anti-critical race theory laws are also passing laws that are harder for citizens to vote. They are passing laws that actually um, pull back on democracy, passing laws that make it harder for women to choose their own reproductive health. Um, all of these things are related, and whether you love or hate the 1619 Project, we should not be um, accepting a society where the state has the power to control what texts we learn from, what ideas we can understand, and more importantly, uh, how we understand the truth about our country. Cole, when you won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for your introductory essay to the 1618 Project last year, you wrote, quote, Ida B. Wills and I were awarded the Pulitzer on the say. How can I not believe that the ancestors intervened on this moment? I will sit in the truth of how she, how they cleared a path for me, how they endured so that I and the 1619 Project could be. Of course, Ida B. Wells was formerly enslaved and went on to be a crusading anti-lynching journalist. She received a special posthumous Pulitzer citation for her outstanding and courageous reporting. You're co-founder of the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting. Can you talk about her pioneering role and what this meant to receive the Pulitzer same day so many years later? Absolutely. Uh, I have long uh, said and claimed Ida B. Wells Barnett as my spiritual godmother. She was honestly the first example of a black woman doing the type of journalism that I wanted to do, which to tell you uh, how um, undiverse or non-diverse the field of investigative reporting is. I, I didn't actually know the examples of black women investigative reporters when I was young. Uh, so she was a a pioneering um, investigative journalist who really brought the, the scourge of lynching uh, to a global audience. She would go into towns where a black man or woman had just been lynched. She would interview people and she would document. And she was actually one of the early data reporters. Would, uh, she started to collect data on how many lynchings were occurring, what were the reasons given for those things, and then what did her reporting show. She also was a true uh, intersection uh, intersectional woman. She was a suffragist uh, and had to fight both for women's rights to vote uh, against the racism within the suffragist movement. She was a civil rights activist. Uh, she was a co-founder of the National Association of um, 
National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, where she had to fight against gender discrimination as a black woman. And so uh, in, in so many ways, she was just this pioneering um, woman who fought for civil rights and equal rights across many things. And she was a woman was largely reviled by white media. And uh, I have in my Twitter bio that I'm a nasty, um, a slanderous and nasty-minded mulattress because that's where times where I work called Ida B. Wells while she was engaging in her anti-lynching crusade. So I take um, great strength from knowing that the attacks on me and the attacks on my work are really just part of the lineage of what happens when black women and, and black women journalists dare to challenge power and challenge authority. So to receive the acknowledgement uh, for this work about the black experience on the same day that Ida B. Wells Barnett, who like so many black journalists, never received uh, the, the acknowledgement that they deserve, um, which is deeply gratifying because I do my work in service of them. Uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, I wanted to go back to the, 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 uh, your mention in the preface of your initial exposure uh, to uh, African American history in, in a high school class uh, with Mr. Ray Dial, and you're talking with him uh, this evening, uh, how he initially exposed you to the history that had never been given to you previously. Uh, and, but this would have been sometime in the late 1980s. I guess the fact that you had a class at all was no doubt due to the struggles of, of black and brown people from the prior generation. Uh, I'm old enough to recall some of, some of those struggles of the 60s and 70s. And particularly, for example, in 1977, uh, that was when uh, the ABC miniseries Roots played on national television based on Alex Hale's book. Uh, it appeared to have record audiences across the country because back then there were basically the three television networks dominated all of television. It, and it, it created a similar national race to what the 1619 Project has done for this generation. But in a few years came the reactionary Reagan era and capitalist America, as it has repeated throughout its history, began to rebury all those lessons. Uh, and so that another generation had to resurrect it, uh, uh, as you and others have done now in recent years. I'm wondering how you feel that this time will be different in terms of not reburying this history in another few years. Let me... Well, first, let me, let me answer that. Hold on. Let me say something about that before you answer, uh, Hannah. Uh, they're going to bury it. That's what they do. And then down the line, someone else, another, um, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is going to come up and rehash it again. See, when I mean by they're going to bury it, I mean that it's going to fade off for a while and you're going to have another native black American or melanated king or queen get back up to the surface. And then they'll make new rules and new laws to try to bury it uh, again. But they're never, ever going to totally get rid of it. As long as we have uh, uh, Ida B. Wells and Nicole Hannah-Jones out here uh, doing all that they can to keep this, uh, these uh, truths and these stories and this uh, uh, unnarrated uh, 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 painting of uh, American history. Because other than that, I understand your, 
your question, uh, believe me, uh, they're going to do all they can to uh, continue to try to bury this uh, uh, 1619 project. But yet, we will prevail with another author, maybe another, as she is, a Pulitzer Prize winner, to uh, bring stuff back up to the surface. But I'm sorry for interrupting you, Hannah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you make commentary. Oh, I was in high school in the 90s. Um, not the oh, 80s. 90s. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's a very sensitive subject when you get to be a woman my age. Um, so I think that um, there are a couple of differences. I mean, well, one, let me say, clearly we are in, in a moment of backlash right now. Um, so we know that there were the textbook wars in the 80s that Reagan um, really tried to... Um, do some similar things to what we're seeing now, that there was a conservative backlash uh, against the teaching of more um, inclusive and honest histories. And we're seeing that, you know, as we speak, this is, this is what we're talking about. We're seeing a wave of laws, like actual laws across the country that are trying to censor uh, how we can talk about racial inequality and the history of racism and really the, the, the histories of who are not white in general. So I think we, we have to be very concerned about the echoes of history and what that means because otherwise we just are going to have to keep uh, relitigating this past and again and, and, and see this kind of perpetual backsliding. I think the difference now though is uh, we just have uh, more democratic access to information. There aren't only three news stations anymore. There are all of these different modes uh, where people are able to um, get out information and add information that they didn't have before. And I don't think, you know, I, I'm doing my work not from a small publication somewhere, but from the New York Times. And it's not going to be possible, I think, for... Um, uh, powerful people to completely raise uh, the knowledge that, that folks are getting. Um, in fact, you wouldn't be seeing all of these laws passed if millions of Americans were not embracing this and wanting to learn more and really wanting to front uh, the truth of who we are. Exactly. Well, and specifically about this resurgence and greater attention now to anti-racism, it's occurring in corporate America, it's occurring in university campuses, uh, uh, specifically a, a, a lot of university administrators and core leaders are, are increasingly talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They even have a new acronym that rolls off their lips, DEI. Uh, and there's all kinds of new research projects, foundation funds, and so diversify staffs. Uh, and yet, most of these institutions continue to pursue exploitative connections to the mass of black and brown communities around them. Uh, in your view, are the pitfalls of, uh, of this current type of what we have to be vigilant against? Okay, so uh, if you follow me at all, you know that I would never use the word wokeness. Uh, I, I think it, it is meaningless, and I think we should never take it. Uh, um, the language of, of conservative propagandists, which is what this book is, uh, is coming from. But what I'll say is uh, one thing that I do have in common uh, with conservatives on this uh, is 
I do think that um, DEI is generally not great, not for the reasons that they say. I just think it tends to be extremely superficial, um, that we actually see much transformation, that all of these corporations that uh, last year with Black Lives Matter, um, all of these institutions, including uh, Congress, um, saying that this was going to be a transformative moment, they did a lot of um, performance. So, you know, DEI trainings and uh, turning your square on Instagram Black, that's performance. If we look a year out, more than a year out, what types of structural change did we see at any of these institutions? And the answer is almost none. So I tend to um, not really be that interested in those things. Uh, I don't think that they are uh, harmful like uh, the right would have you think and I, I don't think that they are um, you know harming individuals or making individuals feel that they don't have a right to free speech but I do think in general that they are ineffective and that many organizations uh, use them uh, as a shield uh, against having to do the actual work. Nicole Hannah-Jones um, you write about your dad um, in the introductory chapter um, uh, we started in Waterloo. Let's um, go there again. Uh, you talk in the end of the first chapter of the 1619 Project by saying, we were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be American, but it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. Can you talk about your father and your feelings about him flying the American flag outside your childhood home and what you came to understand? Sure. So my dad was born on a cotton plantation uh, into a sharecropping family in Greenwood, Mississippi. He was born in 1945. Uh, at a time, black people had uh, virtually no rights of citizenship in Mississippi. Mississippi was uh, nearly a complete apartheid state. And um, he was a, a black man who didn't get full rights of citizenship in this country until he had lived, you know, into his 20s. So, and of course, the full rights of citizenship did not come with equality for my dad. So when I was a, a teenager, um, and my dad was a, a military veteran, uh, black people serve in the military at the highest rates of, of all racial groups. And he was very proud of his service. He flew a flag in our front yard. The flagpole is probably 15 feet, but in my mind, it was 100 feet tall. And I didn't understand why this black man who would live the life that he lived would um, display his patron so outwardly. It seemed to me almost demeaning to do that, to show such outward pride in a country uh, that had never treated him with basic dignity. Um, so I worked through this in the, in the essay on democracy, which is the opening essay for the book, which is really about the unparalleled role that black Americans have played in democratizing this country, that black people, centuries of resistance, have worked to force this country up to uh, its, its founding creed. And I came to understand that my dad's pride uh, was not in that kind of performing black pin wearing patriotism that says America is exceptional and America is, is the greatest nation in the world. But it was a pride in saying our ancestors built so much of what made this country prosperous. Ancestors' blood is in the soil. Our ancestors have fought in every war this country uh, has waged. And our ancestors are the reason we have the, the semblance of democracy that we have, and no one has the right to heritage from us. And it goes back to that line that you just read. Um, black people were 
not given citizenship in this country until uh, the passage of the 14th Amendment after the slavery. And we're not given rights of citizenship until the passage of uh, the civil rights in the 1960s. And yet, because black people were the only forced immigrants to this country, because of the Middle Passage, where we were forced to lose uh, our language, our connection to a home country, you know, any other who immigrates here, um, they can bring food from their country, clothes from their country. They can write back family members. They can go back and visit. Black people had that completely erased, uh, which means it's our country. And we are a product uh, of the new world in a way that no other of people are. Um, and I wanted us uh, to be able to claim the heritage of the land that we built. And Nicole Harry Jones, you're a much decorated uh, journalist, uh, the one that the two pokes, uh, Pulitzer, the Peabody. Then you argue that the media are failing the country during a time when they're needed the most. Could you t- tell us uh, how, why that is? Yes, uh, this program is, is called Democracy Now, and uh, I think our democracy is in danger. Uh, if you are looking, you know, the report that just came out yesterday listed the United States as um, as a, back, a democracy that is backsliding for the first time uh, uh, in the history of that list. If you look at the more than 150 uh, scholars of democracy who have signed open letters saying that our democracy, are Losing our democracy is eroding. If you look at uh, the fact that Republicans are passing laws to so intensely uh, gender in their favor that they can maintain power for decades without winning the majority of the vote. If you look at the wave of uh, restriction laws that we haven't seen since Jim Crow. Um, And yet, uh, the political working class, not all of them clearly, but too many of them are still reporting on this as, uh, as if we are just in normal horse race politics. They're, they're trying to report with this view from nowhere that legitimizes a political party that actually uh, is making it pretty clear that they don't believe in democracy. And I'm very concerned about that. I, I, I you know, as, as a black journalist, as a journalist who comes from the tradition of journalism that couldn't pretend to be objective uh, and couldn't pretend that all of our institutions uh, will, will hold in the face of authoritarianism. I, I think that we are ill-prepared for the that we're in. I think too many political reporters just have too much faith uh, in our political systems, and there's no evidence uh, to back up that faith. So uh, I, I just hope that uh, before it's too late, enough of us uh, get, get an understanding that we can't cover uh, what's happening in our country right now as politics as usual, and you can't dismiss all of these scholars of authoritarianism raising the alarm. Uh, we've got to do better. We know that um, reporting uh, the press is the firewall of our democracy. And I don't think the firewall is holding right now. As we wrap up, I want to ask you about this moment that you're talking about. You've got the inquiry into the riot, the insertion of January 6th being led by a House panel. And you've got the three trials, the written House trial that just wrapped up not guilty on all counts uh, for Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two people and critically wounded a third. You've got the Charlottesville white supremacy trial, and you've got that jury in Brunswick, Georgia now. That's determining the fate of three women, including a former police officer, a Georgia DA indicted for protecting him. But these three white men charged with hunting down and murdering 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery. Um, So we're in the losing arguments now. And a nearly all-white panel of 12 jurors and three alternates um, are 
hearing the rebuttal from prosecutors today. Yesterday, the defense attorney, Hogue, who represents Greg McMichael, the former cop, blamed Arbery's own actions for his death. This is what she said. Turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Arbery to Satilla's shores. He is catching with no socks to cover his own dirty That drew a gasp from the courtroom. Ahmad's Monda Cooper Jones left the courtroom briefly. Can you comment on what she has said and what these trials are about? You know, that was, uh, even for someone who doesn't tend to get shocked uh, by the, the way that Black Americans can be dehumanized um, in the legal system and in society, that was just... Uh, that was just a shocking, a shocking moment. And we're seeing, I mean, I really do hope uh, that the viewers and listeners will get the 1619 book because we're seeing it's laid out in that book. This idea that uh, black people are a separate and distinct group of humans who uh, are inherently suspicious, uh, who just their their presence um, is a lethal weapon. And so even if you have three men Men who are armed, who are chasing down an unarmed person, uh, legitimate. Uh, the the idea that um, random white citizens have the, the authority to stop and question a black person, and if that black person not comply, they can use lethal force. Uh, that is a legacy of the slave patrols, which deputized all white Americans uh, with the ability to question and stop and, and detain black people and know that they were not in white spaces where they weren't supposed to be. Um, all that we're seeing, the insurrection on the Capitol, George Floyd, um, the Rittenhouse trial, which of course to a long legacy of white people who fight for black lives will receive the same poor justice black people receive. Um, I, I think we, we have to decide if we are going to grapple with our country or not. The, the, the kind of defining tension, the defining divide of black, of, of American life begins in 1619 with the introduction of African slavery. Even our very democracy, the idea that we are the only genuine democracy in the world was predicated on excluding black people, it was predicated on a democracy that for uh, the first 100 years, uh, or first, I'm sorry, 200 years, uh, was a democracy of white men. Um, now that we have a democracy that includes all kinds of uh, people of color and women, uh, our democracy is frail. So um, I think that we are in we are in scary times, and uh, we are in times where it's going to require a great deal of courage on behalf of, uh, of our fellow Americans, and I'm frankly just not seeing enough of it. Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine, creator of the Mark 1619 Project. She is the co-editor of the 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, and the adaption of the 1619 Project for Children. It's called Born on the Water. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank 
each and every one of them, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, Juan Gonzalez, and Amy Goodman for their insightful commentary on this uh, a subject, critical race theory. But I will tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, they just, that's just something that America do not want um, being taught or being learned about because their objective is to um, continually be able to paint the false narrative of um, slavery and their cruelty and the um, harmful actions that they've caused in order to put themselves in the position of authority and privilege over other Pacific uh, groups. Now, you have to ask yourself sometime, ladies and gentlemen, why are other states banning the uh, critical race theory? Well, that what I just told you is the very reason why. They do not want to change. It's going to happen. In my personal opinion. Oh, they're going to do all they can to uh, prevent it from happening. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I can guarantee you this, that it will be brought to the uh, forefront. Now, let's think about like um, uh, Fox News. All right. They have uh, mentioned critical race theory like 1,300 times in the last four months. Now, you may ask why. And I'm glad you did. Because I'm going to tell you something. Critical theory has uh, become a new uh, boogeyman for them. Okay? For, uh, for the Mazungus. For people who are unwilling to acknowledge um, that uh, our country, the Valley Snakes of America, has a racist history. Uh, how it is impacting the presence now when it comes to melanated individuals. Now, you got to understand that... Um, why critical race theory has become a flashpoint in the culture. And that's because by acknowledging what happened then, you have to acknowledge the, 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 the present things that are happening, which is a direct result from the racist history that um, this, this uh, country has. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, in the nutshell. It's not hard to uh, figure out. It's just facing up to the uh, realities of today society that is a direct result from their racist past. Plain and simple. I mean, I hope y'all can uh, understand that. I mean, it. it's just critical race theory has become such a flashpoint in, in, in culture that uh, you know, it is important to understand that um, the uh, opponents fear, which is the Mazungus, that the uh, that the uh, admonishment uh, of uh, the Mazungu people for being oppressors, which is what they were, while classifying all Native Black American people as hopelessly oppressed victims. See, they do that. For one, that means that they, uh, you don't have to do no study on um, tangibles and uh, reparations. That means that they should automatically be paying them. So if they allow these studies and this uh, this theory to be a uh, practice 
in a K through 12, as well as in your uh, uh, college years, and uh, uh, accept the fact that uh, it happened. It is what it is, which means they That means that opens up all other type of doors. When we talk about the economy, when we talk about institutional racism, when we talk about housing, when we talk about um, the workforce, okay, uh, this opened up all these doors to where um, historical uh, racism has taken place. It's going to bring bring about more than, in my opinion, than just uh, um, the uh, um, the tangibles that we deserve through our um, reparations that we. Are, are working so hard to try to receive, They're working so hard to make sure that they don't pay it. That's why they keep talking about studies. Just think about this. Okay, and then I'm going to get off of this. How can you say that you're going to do a study to see if Native Black American or any individuals that was enslaved um, to see if they warrant these uh, uh, tangibles? reparations, but yet um, on the same hand you, you're trying to say that uh, critical race theory is against the law and y'all making all type of laws and, and things to uh, uh, suppress it from happening. Okay? Make that make me. Y'all say y'all gonna do a study, but yet you don't want it, the, uh, the educators to um, educate the public your children, your teenagers, your adults about the very thing that y'all y'all finna do a study on. That don't make sense to me. If you're banning all of the material, okay, that uh, you're gonna need and be able to do y'all sort of study, which to me, ladies and gentlemen, we all know ain't nothing but uh, uh, Mayo explain, okay, Miracle Whip spread on the sandwich that uh, cover up the, the, the black toast on your BLT sandwich. Cover it with mayonnaise. So we don't have to look at brown toast. Then we can eat this as well as with no problem and continue to uh, do what we're doing and reign supreme and the divided snakes of America. There you have it. Thank you all so much for t- to another episode of Chilling with Teddy G. I'm going to uh, continue talking about critical uh, race theory in uh, future uh, uh, episodes. So believe me, this is not going to be the last, and this is not the first that you didn't heard about it on the, on this channel. But with all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I want y'all to continue to do your social distancing, continue to wear your outer gear. This is the new normal, okay, That to protect ourselves from Omicrons and the uh, Delta variants and any other of the uh, eight and nine variances that's out here from COVID-19. Take care of your immune system, your number one defense against this virus and the other virus out here. I tell you all these things because Teddy G wholeheartedly love each and every one of you. And loving you guys is my food. And Teddy G is hungry each and every single day of his life. And until God grants me the opportunity to address you guys again, I bid each and every one of you peace, love, and soul.